most of us would be hard-pressed getting through a day without interacting with at least one platform business. Airbnb, Uber, YouTube, eBay, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Kindle, Spotify, Instagram, PayPal, Google. But do we really understand how these businesses work? How they make money? How do they differ from conventional ways of doing business? And what wider implications does the rise of platforms have for our economy and society? On this episode of Think Business Futures, we're going to unpack the theory and practicalities of platform businesses. I'm really interested in why you chose to adopt this kind of platform business model. Because I'm crazy. (laughs) Welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm Nicole Sutton, a lecturer at the UTS Business School. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. On Think Business Futures, we couple cutting-edge business research with real-world examples to explore what is actually happening in the business, finance and marketing world. On this episode, we're speaking with a special international guest who is visiting at UTS from Stanford University, Professor Haim Mendelssohn. Haim is a professor of management and electronic business and commerce at Stanford University. Professor Mendelssohn, from your uh, impressive CV, one of the things that stands out is that you've been quite a pioneer in the area of e-business. So even though the term electronic business has been invented basically by IBM to kind of uh, focus on applications of the internet, in reality it existed well before the internet because basically what we're talking about is information technology from a business point of view and it has become increasingly important and move on to communication and the internet. Perhaps before we get into the details, it's probably going to be helpful with your help if we spend a little bit of time unpacking some of the main concepts and theories. Uh, Probably because while many of our listeners are probably quite familiar with platform businesses like Uber and Amazon and Facebook, perhaps they're a little bit fuzzy about the mechanics and the characteristics which distinguish these sorts of businesses uh, from other perhaps more traditional bricks and mortar operations. So to start us off, what do we mean when we talk about an organization's business model? Okay, great. So that's a very good question uh, because most people don't really define the term. As a result, everybody talks about uh, something different when they talk about the business model. So I'll give you my definition. A business model is basically a model of the business, right? So it's a stylized way of thinking about the structure of a business. And specifically, a business model is a model that describes how a business creates value for its customers, who these customers are, how it delivers value to those customers, sometimes how it delivers customers to the value, right? (laughs) how it structured the value chain. All of these are elements of what I call the value creation model that talks about how we create value for customers. A second element of the business model is what I call the profit model, which specifies what are our sources of revenue what is our cost structure, and what are the key drivers of profitability. And the third element is an element that I call the logic of the business that describes how the different pieces fit together and why they are likely to work in the sense that they are likely to result in the profitability and growth objectives that we have for the business. A way to think about it is 
when you go and build a business, it's a little bit like building a house. Mm. Before you build a house, you probably want to have an architectural plan of the house. So the business model is like a high-level architectural plan of the business. What then is a platform business model? So a platform business model is a special structure or a special architecture of a business model where the key source of value creation comes from coordinating different elements of the value chain. So what happens is that we have a value chain which in the end creates final value for the final customer. Mm-hmm. What a platform business model does is coordinate different elements of that value chain. And that's the main way in which it creates value for customers. Okay. So what happens is that there are other participants in the value chain that actually create the value, that actually uh, bring the value to customers and so on and so forth. But these activities benefit from coordination, mm-hmm. which is done by the platform. What, what would be a well-known example of this value chain coordination that people would be familiar with? So let's take Uber, for example. So if you think about Uber, what happens is that you have the drivers who actually are the ones who, uh, you know, they buy gasoline, they provide the cars, and they're the ones that ultimately ship customers from point A to point B or ultimately bring food to a customer. And you have a the platform, which is Uber, that simply coordinates and matches drivers to consumers. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that the consumer submits the request to Uber. Uber figures out who are the best drivers to deliver that that request. They actually price the service. They provide a matching service. They provide many other value-added services. But what they do is coordination. They don't engage in the actual transportation activity. Right, okay. so it's a value chain coordinator, which is what a platform is. Okay. Would I be right in saying then, and m- maybe this is the wrong way of thinking about it, but it seems to me that just looks like an intermediary, right? So it's kind of much the same as a bank. So uh, it, it depends on uh, the way you define the value chain. So a platform business model ex- exists even without electronic business. So there are traditional platform business models, starting from marketplaces uh, thousands of years ago. So a marketplace is a place that brings buyers and sellers together and helps matching them. So it's a platform. It's not an electronic platform. It was not an electronic platform. Today, most of these platforms are electronic. Or if you go back a hundred years, stock exchanges are platforms. They're platforms that bring together buyers and sellers of stocks and dealers and market makers and it helps coordinate the activity although it doesn't put money into the stocks it doesn't engage in the direct investment activity it provides a matching service so platform business models are more general than electronic platforms This might be a good time to take a break from the theoretical and speak to someone who is operating their own platform business. My name's Vanui Nazarian. I'm the founder of Kindershare and we connect owners and renters of children's equipment. You heard that right. Kindershare provides a platform for people to rent baby equipment. Vanui says the idea was born out of necessity. At the time, 
Vanui was not only on maternity leave, she was also doing postgraduate study here at UTS and her assignment was to create a new business model. So it came from a personal need that we had. We'd had two children, had a house full of baby equipment, weren't sure if we wanted the third or not. But at the same time, when we needed baby equipment, when we were travelling, we were having to pay exorbitant amounts to rent them from businesses. And so we thought, there has to be something in this. Had a university assignment to do to come up with a business idea, and it was like, well, the answer's quite simple. Um, And then we thought, yeah, we could actually make this work. If you're picturing something like Airbnb for baby equipment, you're not far off. It's exactly right. Exactly right. Not as high tech, but still a lot of the functionality that's there with Airbnb we have as well. Oh yeah, like what? So things like being able to sort by features, sort by um, location, by availability dates, online payments, you're um, we're all taken care of. We do booking calendars, so an owner doesn't have to cross-check each booking against other bookings. It's all taken care of for them. On the renter side of things, um, they find our website and they can easily search by location. System automatically picks up their existing location, uh, gives them items that are closest to them. They can browse by category. So, for example, car seats, prams or cots, things like that, um, or just anything that's in their area, just click on the button, book, done. Mm-hmm. Um, get in touch with the owner and arrange pickup or delivery, depending on whichever one the owner offers. From the owner's side of things, again, things are fairly simple. They can just pop on, on their phone, um, take a couple of photos, write up a short description, and that's it. I'm kind of interested in the, um, the pricing side. So mm-hmm. do the owners get to set the prices that they're willing to rent out? So my co-founder is a lawyer, so we were very careful about stepping over the agency versus principal barrier. So we've left that pricing decision entirely up to the owners to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our owners will offer, for example, a discount for longer rentals, but in the whole, it's entirely their um, choice. We do give them some information and say to them, okay, just keep in mind the renter's perspective. So if they're renting something for, say, two months, you want to make it worthwhile for them to rent versus buy. So just give them that sort of general guidance rather than anything too specific. And I'm really interested in unpicking with you why you chose to adopt this kind of platform business model. Um, What sort of reasons did you have? Because I'm crazy. (laughs) Um, at the time it was, the subject I was studying was about business models. So we were exploring different business models. Um, it just so happened that at the time we were booking an Airbnb and we thought, oh, well, this just makes sense. You would do this. Um, at one stage fairly early on, um, a franchise became available for a B to C baby rental company. Sorry, I'm going to have to unpick. What does B to C mean? So business to consumer. So a traditional rental company. So, um... That would be a hotel instead of Airbnb as a similar company. Um, And I did look into it and I thought, well, this makes sense to sort of expand into this area. But then I looked at it and I thought, no, I mean, this is entirely a time-based business. Why would I do this? So we're back 100% to a platform model. Yeah, okay. Because say, yeah, the alternative would be if you were to be renting uh, uh, your inventory of childcare equipment, uh, 
what would be the kind of the compare? What do you see as the comparative advantages instead of doing that, if, instead of offering a platform business? Yeah, sure. There's there's quite a few advantages. The first one, like I mentioned, is the time factor. In a traditional business, your revenue is a factor of the time you put in, whereas in a platform business, your revenue is a factor of a whole other group of issues that are going on. So things like how well you can market, how well you can get a number of people to list, how many connections you can make and all of these other things. Whereas in a traditional business, the only way you're going to make money is if you sit in the car, deliver the car seat to the next person, pick it up again. There's only so many times you can do that in a day. So your income, eventual income is capped. Don't have that. We might run an ad um, in a targeted area and find someone that's got a capsule and get them on board so hmm, hmm okay well let's flip it then so these are the, this is the good news right <laughs> yes okay and before you said that I mean you said it, you're a little bit crazy to uh, <laughs> to go down this this road um can you tell us a little bit about some of the the challenges of running a platform business yeah sure so the number one challenge of any business I think is um, managing customers. But when you're running a platform business, you're actually managing two sets of customers. And in our case, almost three sets of customers. So we've got our owners, we have our renters, and we have actually a number of traditional rental businesses that also list their items on our platform as well. So um, dealing with each of those groups is quite challenging and um, unique. So you need to tailor all of your communications separately. You need to tailor your marketing separately all of that stuff. So that in itself is quite Can, can you expand on this a little bit in terms of why that is so challenging? Like, so what, what, or could perhaps give me an example of uh, where you've had, why you've had to separate out your marketing, marketing from your owners versus say your renters. Okay. So if we talk about something like a, if we're targeting someone that has a capsule, for example, if we're targeting the owner side of Things. We're saying to them, no, no, don't sell your capsule. You can actually make more money renting out your capsule. So you could be earning X dollars every six months by renting out your capsule. And on, so we're pushing a higher revenue model to them. But then on the renter side of things, we're saying, no, no, you don't need to go and buy one. Look how cheap it is to use our platform. So, you know, just in that very simple example, there's two very opposite messages that are going out. So there's the problem in terms of you've now doubled, if not tripled, your customer interactions. Yes. What else? Um, the other big one is your profitability 100% depends upon your customer's profitability. Mm. So um, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Your interests are aligned to your customer's interests, which, you know, theory, business theory says that's the way you grow your business. But to actually financially be so tied to them. I only make money when they make money. So I really need to be on the ball, making sure that they're maximising revenue yeah. as much as possible. So this is your owners. So yes. your owners with the capsule, like, and I imagine you're making some sort of margin off their transactions. Yes, yeah, yeah, so we take a flat 13% at the moment. Okay. And so... Yeah, that thirteen, the size of that thirteen percent really depends. <laughs> yep, on the business savviness of uh, these young parents. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of education that needs to happen, and we're still very early stages of trying to get that messaging right. You're listening to Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're speaking with Professor Heim Mendelssohn about platform businesses. 
So let's pop up a level back to the theory with Haim. You know, I'm picking the the business model then. And as you said before, one of the key elements was uh, understanding the, the profit side of, of, of a business model, the revenues and the costs. Sorry, the accountant, my ears prick up here. Um, so if we think about the revenues and the costs, how do platform businesses make their money? So typically, uh, platform businesses make money through a combination of listing fees, transaction fees. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they would have both transaction and listing fees. Sometimes they would have only one versus the other. So so a listing fee would be, for example, in Airbnb, if you want to list on on Airbnb. So if you list on Airbnb, so in the case of Airbnb, Airbnb makes money through transaction fees. Okay. So what happens in the case of Airbnb, if you list on Airbnb, it typically doesn't cost you anything. And then consumers can search on Airbnb. And uh, in the event that a consumer found a listing that they like, and they ended up actually converting it to an, into a booking, hmm. Airbnb provides actually the payment service in an escrow service. And what they do is the consumer would give them their credit card data mm -hmm. and would commit to make a payment. Hmm. And Airbnb would release that payment if everything went okay after 24 hours. So they hold it in escrow for 24 hours, and then they pay this. They pay the, I guess they call it the host. So yeah. you have the guest and the host. And typically, what happens is that the guest would pay 10% of the listing price. Actually, goes to Airbnb. Yeah. And the host would typically pay Airbnb something like 3%, which is close to the amount of money that Airbnb has to pay the credit card provider okay. in return for the payment service. Okay. So essentially, they price it so that the host pays essentially at Airbnb's cost and the rest of the money comes from the guest. Yeah. Okay, and that's an example of a transaction, a transaction fee because if yep. there's no transaction, there is no payment okay. to Airbnb. Okay. So Airbnb gets compensated only if they found a successful match. Yep. A third component of revenue for platforms is value-added services. Mm -hmm. So typically, platforms provide additional services which create another re revenue source for them. Okay. In the case of Airbnb, what would happen is that they have other types of listings that create additional revenue for them. So, for example, experiences, which is a new type of listing, typically a traveler is going to look for a place to stay, and then Airbnb will say, you know, aren't you interested in the following experiences? So the fact that they actually transacted on Airbnb creates a customer for other services for which they make additional money. And so what do you see as being the main advantages of platform businesses? I guess because they are some of the, uh, the most well-known companies in the world, perhaps the most valuable companies in the world, and now, um, at least by market value, are platform businesses. So we need to think carefully what we mean by advantages, Yeah. because different business models create value in very different ways. And... Many business models simply are unlikely to become platform businesses because that's not how they create value. So 
what happens is that one of the reasons that platform businesses are more successful relative to many other business models is that if they succeed in scaling up, they can scale up very quickly because they are characterized by network effects. Mm-hmm. And these network effects tend to create advantages to scale which are more than proportional to the scale itself. So shifting gears a little then, what are some of the main challenges or risks that platform businesses face? So I think the biggest challenge for a platform business is to get enough scale when they start. So what happens is that many platforms, when they start, have a challenge which is called the chicken-egg problem, Mm. where, in this case, the hosts want to see the guests first, and the guests want to see the host first. So the challenge is to get started, to get critical mass, so that you have, in this case, enough hosts, so that enough guests will show up, so that more more hosts will show up, so that you will have more guests and so on. And at the beginning of any platform business, it's very hard to do that. This is potentially going to be a little contentious, I guess. There would be people that would argue that platform businesses really don't actually contribute a lot to the economy, given that they're marketplace creators, like you talked about earlier, or intermediaries. I mean, what do they actually do? I mean, it's the business that does stuff. It's not the platform business. Great. So what they do is they help other businesses do stuff, right? So basically the value comes from the fact that you open up channels for other businesses that do real work and create real value for customers. And as a result of that, both these other businesses and their customers are better off, right? So even even if the only thing that you do is coordination, that coordination creates a lot of value for both the sellers and the buyers. That's one argument, but can I just push you a little further on that? Absolutely. If you're creating a large and transparent market, which some would argue is a good thing, it's great from a consumer perspective, certainly in the early stages, because you buy more cheaply, you're controlling quality. But all the businesses that supply in that marketplace, it's far more difficult for them to create a distinctiveness that gives them competitive advantage because price is the major clearing point, like in any competitive market. And, you know, whether you get five stars or four So how would they sell without the platform? If they don't have any distinctiveness, how will they sell? Largely based on price. A lot of these are kind of commodity-type products. Okay. So if you have a commodity seller and they sell based on price how would their buyers know that they have the best price? So if I take, if I go back to you know a smaller uh, market uh, setting, then there's more capacity because there's less broader competition, then the capacity to develop returns on capital uh, is a lot greater at that yeah. point. But when you sit with lots and lots of a far more competitive yeah. market, then your capacity to get a greater price and get greater returns on capital. So the marginal revenue coincides with the marginal cost, and then nobody actually makes okay. any money. So you're arguing that making the market more competitive is bad for the sellers because their uh, price gets closer to their margins, right? That's right. Now, most people would say competitive markets are good. Are you saying competitive markets are bad? 
I'm saying that in certain contexts, I mean, competitive markers are great for consumers. Okay. But as a business owner, if something's highly competitive, it's far more difficult unless you've got huge scale to make appropriate returns on capital. So over time, then, it just favors large business. So typically what happens is that in markets that are less competitive, there are established entrenched players that collect uh, rents. They get a high return on their investment, so they're better off. But all of the potential entrants that want to enter that market and, and bring new price points, bring new types of services, suffer as a result of that. So what happens is that it's true that there are going to be some players that lose as a result of making the market more competitive. But typically, these would be players that should lose because the entrants are going to bring to the market better products at better prices or more innovative products or other sources of differentiator, differentiation that the established players don't have an incentive to invest in because they control the market. So your argument then is it provides more opportunity for disruptors, to use a Clayton Christensen term, which is often misquoted, but it provides far more opportunity for disruptors and then the incumbents, if they're not efficient, then tend to leave the marketplace. And so we weed out of the marketplace people that probably shouldn't be there. Right. So disruptors, but they don't have to be disruptors. There can be other players who don't have a scale or political clout or some other advantages that can bring to the market uh, products that distinguish them on dimensions other than price. Right. So they, what happens is that competitive markets typically creates more innovation, whether it's disruptive or not. It can be just a normal innovation, and it creates high returns to innovation because you don't have an established player that controls the market. The established player, you know, will have to, to improve their game, right? They'll have to find ways to make themselves more efficient or to bring other dimensions of innovation so that they don't lose their control on the market. So typically, that's why people believe that in most cases, there are a few cases where competition is considered to be harmful, but in most cases, competition is considered to be uh, positive. Okay. So can I just, sorry to push you a little further on this. So if I think of the example of, say, Apple and the fact that they've then turned themselves into a platform business, right, that you, you you talk about and so on. Just on that, so just to be clear, what is the what's the platform that Apple has created? What are it's we talking the app about? Store. The App Store. Okay, so it's the it's the marketplace where app developers can yeah. uh, get sell their apps. Okay. Okay, so they've created the App Store. We have a marketplace. Then it seems that there are a lot of, if I frame it as being small businesses, creating apps to go into that particular marketplace and they bear all the cost associated with yep. that. That's a massive loss at a much broader level, don't you think? So uh, I remember talking to people who developed applications before the App Store. You could actually uh, build an app and you could uh, make it available to consumers in the United States. But the question was, how would consumers find it? So what you had to do is make sure 
that the app is shown on what was called the deck, which was basically the main screen that the operator showed the consumers. How do you get the app to the main screen? So what you had to do was spend two years, typically, kind of going and talking to their executives and whining and dining them and persuading them it's a great app. And then uh, you paid 40% of your revenues, at least, to get it on the main deck. And only a small number of apps actually were there because it was limited space. So what happened was that we saw very little app development in the United States because it would take two years to actually bring it to market, be very expensive, and chances were that you will not be successful if you didn't have the relationship with the executives in those companies. What the App Store did was open up the market to many, many app developers. And of course, uh, many of them are not successful, but it's their choice. Most of the apps are free apps anyway. And people enjoy actually developing those apps. They use it as a way of showing their talent. They enjoy it. That's why they do it. Uh, So it opened up a market that essentially did not exist before. And of course, it created the opportunities for companies that never existed before to bring to the market new types of functionality, entertainment, uh, content, and so on and so forth. So the main result, we have much more innovation, uh, much more value created, regardless of the fact that most apps are actually not used very much. So in actual fact, for someone who's really serious in that space, this has actually reduced the transaction cost enormously for them, development cost and so on. And then it's provided a lot of opportunity for people who are probably doing this for more intrinsic reasons rather than necessarily extrinsic or money-making reasons. Absolutely. I'd like to come back to this point you've just spoken about, about this idea about mediation and the way in which these organisations mediate uh, connections between consumers uh, and, other, and, and other businesses as well. And I guess for me, I'm perhaps just a little bit concerned about perhaps the level of influence or power that some of these organisations acquire. For the way, I mean, for example, the way in which a certain app is designed can shape our social conventions about how we date or who we date or who we have romantic connections with. And obviously, uh, of recent events have shown that quite clearly the way that Facebook mediates our relation between ourselves, the media uh, and politics. And so I'm, I'm really interested in your views about in this context, should we be concerned about how much power and influence these platform organizations have in mediating our connections in society? I think the answer is yes. So basically what happens is that because uh, platforms tend to create a larger scale than we have for many other businesses, and there are built-in forces that help them sustain that scale, they can reach a point where they have a lot of control over things that lots of people care about, like content. And I think that this is a legitimate concern and uh, different people have different views on how much regulation is necessary. But clearly it's a serious problem. Mm. Do you have a sense of uh, what sort of 
controls might be necessary to check their power? I mean, before we started talking about other intermediaries, other platforms that existed that were not necessarily electronic. So, for example, uh, banks or marketplaces uh, that brought, uh, that that facilitated kind of transactions. Uh, And these have been held in check by regulation, uh, by professional codes of conduct, by competition uh, and by licensing. Do you have a view about what sort of controls we might need to keep the control over different platforms? So what happens is that quite a number of platforms bring uh, electronic capabilities to more traditional businesses. So when you think about uh, financial transactions, we have a lot of regulation in each country of financial transactions of different forms. And in many cases, those same regulations apply as well to electronic platforms. So I'll give you an example. So if you're talking about banking, so there are banking regulations. And if you and you have a, a peer-to-peer lending platforms, which could become the banks of the future, now the question is how should they be regulated? So at the starting point, all they are is uh, intermediaries. They don't uh, actually hold any assets, any consumer assets. And the way they've been structured was essentially when you... So this becomes very technical, so I don't know if you, we That's should okay. get there. Yeah, yeah. That's okay? Yeah. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll go, go to the beginning and start yeah. with more background yeah. because this is a little technical. So, so let's look at a person-to-person lending platforms. And essentially, these are platforms that allow a consumer to borrow money from another consumer, or sometimes a small business may borrow money from another consumer, So that's an activity which essentially is similar to what banks are doing when they lend money to consumers or businesses. And the question is, okay, so should they be regulated as banks? So the way they've structured their activities was such that some of these activities are subject to banking regulations and some are not. So they have broken their business into two parts. One part is the regulated part, which is typically done by a bank that has a banking license and is regulated just like any other bank. And the other part is the the transactional aspects of basically allowing one consumer to find another consumer. Initially, they were not regulated. But over time, in the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission has determined that actually these loans are securities, and they have to be regulated just like any other securities. So what happens is that traditional regulation already exists in these areas, and the question is, what is the best way to phase it into these platforms, where in the end where the end-to-end value chain creates value to a customer in a way that's similar to a bank, that same end-to-end value chain has to be regulated as a bank. And now the question is, what will be the regulated entity? What will be the less regulated entity? And that creates a lot of work for attorneys and so on. But in the end, there's going to be regulation somewhere in the value chain. And that part is going to be the bank. So... Again, when you look at the entire value chain, 
the total amount of regulation that applies to that activity in the traditional world has to be the same as in the electronic world. Mm. So that solves about 60% of these problems. So that's good. That's most of them. <laughs> that's a good right? start. Yeah, okay, good, now, good. Now, what then happens is that the question is, have we created a, a capabilities that didn't exist before and require regulation? So some of that has to do with antitrust. Does Google have a monopoly on advertising? The European Commission says yes, right? So they're subject to traditional regulation, antitrust regulation. They're subject to privacy regulation and so on and so forth. So what happens is that in the 40%, there's a debate on how much should be regulated by the traditional forms. I think that there is still a residual, maybe 10%, maybe 10 20%, but there is a residual that requires new forms of regulation. But I think the bulk of activities, typically, we can find when you look at the total value chain, how value is created from inputs to the output that goes to the ultimate consumer, we should not give up on regulation and we should and we should let the companies structure themselves in such a way that different companies bear the burden of regulation at different parts of the value chain depending on where they want to be right so if you want to control the entire value chain welcome to the world of regulation mm -hmm. if you don't want to be regulated make sure that you stay within the scope of that part which is not supposed to be regulated so your central point then is that the components or, or the players in this have their own regulatory obligations and then this aggregates to a largely regulated system. When regulation exists in the previous way of delivering that same type of product or service. Mm. So I'm arguing that conceptually we, the starting point should be not to start looking for a thousand and one ways to regulate these new activities, but the starting point should be to say, okay, let's look at the entire value chain and let's think at how we regulate it today and how are we going to bring the same degree of protection to the electronic version of that, as opposed to jumping ahead and looking for another way, another way, and most of these end up being ad hoc and you know unintended consequences and so on and so forth. So it's cons I think it's in practice it's much more difficult than it is conceptually because you need to find ways to define terms that were never defined for that world but that's the nature of progress. I mean whenever we make progress we need to adapt the rest of the world to that progress. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Thanks to Professor Heim Mendelssohn for coming on the show to share his insights and passion about e-business, business models, and in particular, platform business models. 